A Boeing 727 cannot get off the ground and crashes into a small building and beach just beyond the runway. How did horrible organization keep this bird from taking off? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. For episode number 10. Whoop, whoop. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Thanks for still listening. If you're new to listening, welcome. Happy... Everything. Everything. Merry Christmas. Happy Happy Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Merry Kwanzaa. Happy Holidays. Whatever you celebrate across the many, many places that we have listening. Happy, happy holidays. This comes out the week of... um, This actually comes out on Christmas Eve, so... Merry... Christmas Eve. (laughs) Merry everything. Um, We want to give a shout out to all of the countries that we have listeners from, which we just found out is 21 countries as of five minutes ago. Yay. Pretty good, honestly, for 10 episodes in. We also hit 1,000 listeners on, or 1,000 likes on Facebook today. Yeah. Which is pretty good. So many people keep listening. Do the stuff. So we're going to stagger how we say these. Oh, Jesus. Okay. So... Thank you to everyone, of course, in the United States listening. Uh, the UK is 8% of our listeners. Australia is 5%. Germany. Hong Kong. Barbados. Sweden. South Africa. Algeria. Ireland. Norway. Nigeria. Canada. Costa Rica. Vietnam. Thailand. Pakistan. Colombia. Denmark. Kenya. And the Netherlands. Special shout out to... Our Nigerian listeners who just got to hear, I mean, where we are, when we are, just got to hear the Nigerian Airways one, so you're new, sorry. Yeah, we found that out this week, and then we were like, our next episode is about Nigeria Airways. Airways, Sorry. But yeah, I think within the last 24 hours, we've gotten Kenya, the Netherlands, and South Africa, and whoever is in South Africa. And Pakistan. And Pakistan. And whoever's in South Africa freaking binged because most countries come on our list at less than 1%. No, you're at 1% of our listens. Congratulations. It's pretty good. All right. So for our special holiday episode, Nick, what are we covering today? Yeah, we're covering a, a Christmas crash. Christmas crash. But it was not in the United States. And uh, I don't know what the Midori religion would have been on this flight, so... I don't know if it actually mattered to them that it was on Christmas Day or not. Anyways, this cr- this crash took place on December 25th of 2003. This is GIH 141, Gulf India Hotel 141. The airline was called, Utaj was for short, but it was Union de Transport Africain. It's French. Shocker. Yeah, it was. It also super French. It also went by UTA, um, but UTA is a much bigger airline. There's another airline called UTA, and so because of that, they more often go by Utah. U T A G E. So that said, they are going to mispronounce possibly some things. Yes, the report was interesting because it was translated from French. From French, it was the investigation was done by the French Bureau for Aviation, for Aviation Accidents. So it was put on, it was done by the French. Did it happen in France? It did not. Negatory. Not even close, was actually. Was it from France? Nope. nope. Not even close. Oh, but It has great. nothing to do with France or the mainland of France or anything related to then France why were the French involved? Because... Was it a French, it wasn't a French airline, was it? No, but it was in a French, what was once a French territory. Uh, okay. That makes sense. Yep. So they helped out. This was on a 727-200 with a registration of, at the time, 3X-ray-Golf-Delta-Oscar. The airplane was built in 1977, and it belonged to American Airlines for most of its lifetime. The 727 is a trijet, so it has three engines, all of which are at the tail. So one is mounted on the top middle of the fuselage in the tail, and then two on either side of the tail of the fuselage. It is a T-tail airplane and a mid-low wing airplane, so the wing is below the, few, the passenger cabin. And it was equipped with 140 seats. 
I didn't find any names for the captain, first officer, or flight engineer. I didn't either. Yeah. Let me check the Wikipedia page. Maybe I'm wrong. Also, quick note. Me and Nick are still sick. Like, yeah. I got re-sick. <coughs> so did Nick. So, yeah. you may hear some coughs and stuff. That, again. Again, that we can't. We just keep getting sick. So I'm hoping that by the time this episode actually comes out, right before Christmas, I am not sick anymore. Uh, Especially because we have to travel right uh, after Christmas. You're telling that me. That would suck. If my so, sinuses still felt like this, flying in an airplane would hurt. Just so you guys know, there might be some coughs and stuff we can't edit out, so... We'll try our best. We'll try our best. So I'm going to steal your bullet point on this one and read it verbatim from the Wikipedia. Can you read the names and then I'll get the hours? The captain was an unnamed 49-year-old male. (laughs) (laughs) Unnamed. (laughs) Who had his first flight with the airline on December 8th, 2003. He had 11,000... December 8th? Oh, hey, that's today. December 8th of two, so literally weeks before the crash. It was the first time he flew for the With airline. the airline. Well, yes, the airline. The airline he was currently working yes. for. Yes. So let me clarify. That sucks. The entire crew's first flight with the airline was December 8th. Why? Because the airline only existed with one airplane. Uh, was it new? No. But the, the airline had been around for about a year, but the airplane was leased from another company. And so they would lease this airplane a couple of times before this. And each time the leasing company had to then also find a qualified crew and provide it to the operator. So the company that owned the airplane found this crew. When they began leasing. When they began leasing the airplane to the airline. And they brought the whole crew in. Okay. So he had 11,000 flight hours, including 8,000 on the 727. The first officer was also an unnamed 49-year-old male whose flight information was not stated in the report. Yeah, they don't know. They actually, they said uh, they couldn't find any records of his hours or anything. Which is interesting because... It's not normal. No, it doesn't last... mean... He, it also doesn't mean that he's not qualified. They just no. couldn't find the records. Which, usually it's in the cockpit with them. Which is interesting because, spoiler, the cockpit wasn't really that damaged. Yeah, but regardless, yeah, they didn't find the records, and they do know that he was, I think he was a military pilot, and he was airline transport pilot rated. The flight engineer was an unnamed 45-year-old male who had 14,000 flight hours, all of which were on the 727. Yep, you can do that as a flight engineer. So when did flight engineers stop being a thing? So technically, they're not stopped being a thing. (laughs) Well, there, I mean, there are very, very, very few cases where a flight engineer still exists most of the time. It's on, obviously, ancient airplanes flying in third world countries. These days in the United States, all of the airplanes that had them, if they're still flying, they have systems that have replaced the flight engineer. I.e. the MD-10, which used to be the DC-10, is just an updated avionics package on the DC-10 that FedEx runs. And it replaced the flight engineer. Around what time did that happen, though? So, flight engineers really completely disappeared in the United States within the last probably 15 years. Okay. So it's not that long, to be honest. Around, this isn't the United States right, in this flight. So. Even around the time of this incident, there were probably well, yeah. still some flight engineers I mean, operating This in the was US. more than 15 years ago at this point. Because 15 years ago, pretty soon now, would be... 2005. 2005, so, yeah. Right. Around the time of this flight, there would still be some flight engineers operating in the United States even, so. I was just so curious. So it's not untold. Yeah. It was on a weekly scheduled flight from, are you ready for this? Because this gets weird. <laughs> from, from Conakry, Guinea. Conakry. Guinea. Continue Benin. Kufra, Libya. Beirut, Lebanon. And Dubai in the UAE. Yes. So, yeah. So, it was basically from Conakry to Dubai with stopovers in Contenu, Kufra, and Beirut in between. I believe that Kufra was only for fuel, though. Because the distance from Contenu to to Beirut is pretty far. But anyway, so, it it was a busy, long flight 
for the crew. The airplane had departed Conakry with 86 passengers, including three babies and 10 crew members that morning, and it arrived in Contenu at 12.25, at which point nine passengers disembarked. 63 people, including two babies, checked in at the airline's counter in Contenu. Ten people, including one baby, boarded from a flight that had arrived from Lome, Lome in Togo. We're going to mess all of these up. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Not my part of the world. And it's, it, if it's you have difficult. like phonetic English, you can put in our, you can put it on the comments page. You can put it in the Facebook group. We're sorry. I mean, yeah, we just, we, yeah. The only one of us here who speaks some level of French is Nick, and it's not even that great. Yeah. That said, passenger and luggage loading was a very confusing and disorganized process. Tickets that they had did not include names or seat numbers. Passengers in the boarding area were buying tickets off of other passengers to get on the flight. Tickets were not being checked. An official manifest was not created. And it's unknown how many people actually boarded this flight. What? <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah. Oh, no. Okay. Can I guess what this is already going to be about? Has, does it have something to do with the weight of the airplane? Yes. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it has to. I mean, when you have, you don't know who's coming on your flight, how many people are on your flight. There's no, and there's no manifest. There's no way for you to have oh. proper weight and balance. Oh, stuff. it gets so much better. Just oh, you wait. great. We shouldn't say there's no manifest. There's uh, just not a consistent manifest. Okay, I'll get to that. There's like okay. seven? There are seven different what? manifests oh given for this God. flight. And not one of them is an official manifest. And none of them match the other. Right. Okay. okay. <laughs> it gets better. <laughs> I promise. We told Miranda at dinner this would make her mad. Yeah. The airplane was completely full with passengers. Uh, faced with a particularly large number and size of handbags that were carried on, the chief flight attendant informed the flight crew of this <laughs> concern. There were two jump seats in the cockpit that were also filled with two airline employees. The ground agents who were loading baggage began loading them into the aft hold after another agent, who remains unidentified in the report, that's literally what it says, asked them to continue loading the for in the forward hold, which had already been loaded with baggage. The hold was very full upon completion of loading. At the same time, the flight crew was preparing the airplane for the next leg of the journey, the first officer was discussing concerns with the UTA executives, UTA, the Utah executives, about the weight and balance, reminding them of the importance of this and its precision. The captain signed and turned over the flight plan to the air traffic control office. Fuel was added to fill up the tanks of the 727 to 11.4 metric tons. The accompanying mechanics on the flight added some oil. The captain determined the limitations for the flight and selected a configuration of 25 degrees of flaps with the air conditioning shut down in order to avoid a loss of power. At 1.47 p.m., the crew began the pre-flight checklist. At 1.52 p.m., they were cleared to taxi. The first officer was the pilot flying. The elevator trim was set to 6 and 3 quarter degrees. Takeoff was to be performed with full power with the brakes on to start in order to reduce the takeoff roll distance. As they taxied, a flight attendant informed the flight crew that passengers who wanted to switch seats to sit with their friends were still standing and did not want to sit down. The airline's director general finally called the cabin to order. At 1.58 p.m., takeoff thrust was selected and the brakes were released at 1.58 and 15 seconds. The air traffic control and his trainee assistant noted that the airplane's takeoff roll was long, but they did not take particular notice of it. At 1.59 p.m., a speed of 137 knots was reached, at which point the captain called out V1 and then VR, which is rotate. V1 is the point of no return, so you cannot back out, and rotate is the point at which you pull the nose up. First officer pulled back on the control column, but the airplane did not immediately lift. So he pulled back harder, at which point the angle of attack of the nose began slowly increasing. At 1.59 and 11 seconds, the airplane barely left the ground when it struck a localizer building, a few hundred feet from the end of the runway, in line with the center line of the runway. 
The right main landing gear sheared from the underside of the wing and struck a flap, destroying it in the process. The airplane then banked to the right slightly before crashing into the beach just past the airport, followed by contact with the ocean, where the fuselage separated into several large pieces. The two controllers in the tower heard the noise and saw the airplane plunge toward the ground, followed by a cloud of sand which prevented them from seeing anything else. Okay. Here's my problem. (laughs) Only one? (laughs) So many problems. But the reason why, if anyone wants to know why they ask you not to move your seat before you're in the air, it's for weight and balance stuff. On our way back from Baltimore, we were on a spirit flight, and there literally could not have been more than 30 to 40 people on this 200-plus person aircraft, and they had a bunch of us sitting up front, a bunch of people sitting in the back, and not really anybody in the middle. We were the people in the middle. Yeah. yeah. Like, we, we were, the were only literally full row. <laughs> the only full our, row. Our party of six took up the row in front of the exit row. Yeah. Yeah. We were an entire part of si- party of six, so they sat us all in one row. And I thought it was really funny because that was the only option it gave us. But then we got on the flight and literally like the, the entire thing was friggin' empty. We were the only full row because we were all one party. Right. Now, after takeoff, we were able to move seats and all of us took a window seat and passed out. It, and that's because when once you reach cruising altitude, you're fine. It's takeoff where balance and weight is really important. And that's why I'm having a problem. Like... You're loading too much baggage onto this plane. You're putting more fuel in it, so it's getting heavier and heavier. You don't know. You don't have a consistent manifest, so you don't know exactly who's on the plane. And then you have people standing up. You have people moving around the cat. Like that's why you can't move around when you take off. Too is it knocks? You wouldn't think it would be a big issue, but if there's multiple people moving around the fuselage while you're trying to take off, it puts the balance out of. Well, that's Where part of it. it's supposed to be. <clears throat> that's part of it. And, There's a lot of parts. And it's this. also dangerous. Like, yeah. you could get, you know, hurt. But... Those individuals that were standing and were not in a fastened seat belt in a chair setting did fly around the fuselage during the crash. Yeah. So, <laughs> this is where things do get interesting. Not that they aren't already, but <laughs> <laughs> things get kind of weird. Anyways, so... The ending of the story in the report goes into the immediate aftermath with the firefighters showing up. When the firefighters arrived on site, they noticed the destruction to the building and found one man severely injured inside. When they noticed some aircraft parts on the beach from where they were standing, they went through the service gate and found some survivors still in the wreckage, others in the water, and some on the beach. Locals are crowded around causing... caused. Difficulties for rescue operations. The town's fire brigade was helped by the Red Cross and the Continue SAMU and the police. There were 22 survivors, all said and done, and an unknown number of perished. Because they didn't have a manifest. Yeah, there was... Consistent manifest. Yeah, and numbers of bodies found ranged very widely, and it was anywhere between 140 and 148 perished. They estimate... That's all we know. Ugh. So, the plane struck a localizer building at the end of the runway. This building is used as a navigational aid and is right next to the localizer antenna, which put out a frequency which is then picked up by the airplanes and used as a directional beacon. Somebody was inside the building and was seriously injured, but lived. The plane then crashed onto the beach and ultimately ended up in the ocean. The image that I am showing these guys is on our website and is a map of the area with red asterisks indicating where parts of the plane ended up in relation to the localizer building. The plane damaged the localizer antenna, as well as the building, which was made of reinforced concrete, and it took the roof clear off the building, as shown in this picture. That black mark on the side of the building in the next picture was from the landing gear tire on the right side of the plane. The roof was, quote, thrown 9 meters, or 30 feet away from the building. The debris found in and around the building included part of the tail, the right main landing gear, and some retractable stairs from the tail. Is the is the red and white the actual building, yep. or is yes. it? Yes, it is. Okay. No, like there's no roof. Yeah, localizer buildings are usually always red and white everywhere in the world, actually. And that... So are we looking at 
Okay, I'm just trying to figure out what I'm seeing here. Is this the localizer antenna right here? Or what is this in the foreground? <coughs> yes, you're looking through the localizer antenna. There's two little gray pieces there. Yes. It stretches much further in either direction. They're standing right in front of it. But that black mark on the right side of the building was from the tire. Okay, so... Okay. The plane then went on to damage the airport boundary wall, leaving some parts of the fuselage, part of a flap, and a landing gear door. Beyond the wall was a rain drainage canal where they found parts of the main landing gear and parts of the right wing. Most of the plane was in the ocean between 3 and 10 meters deep, kept in place by the waves that were breaking about 50 meters out. Engines 2 and 3 were found with no damage before impact, but engine 1, the left engine, was never found. Yeah. How do you lose an engine? <clears throat> they suspect it got buried in the sand pretty quickly as it... So it's still not found as far as we know. Yeah. Wouldn't that be funny if one Treasure day... Hunt. One day someone goes out there and they just decide to, like, you know, go go underneath the, the, the water. Because ten... Three to ten meters underneath the surface. No, but it's surface. in the sand. Yes, but that isn't that far down. So if they decide, oh, let's just go like treasure hunting, and you see a gigantic engine. Fun times. And so I can figure out which engine we're talking about. It's the left engine. It's the left one? Yeah. So yes. it's one, two, three? Always yes. is. Yep. Okay. It's always left to right the way you would read. Okay, so they couldn't find the left engine. Correct. Okay. And as I mentioned way earlier... The cockpit did not sustain a lot of damage, just the flight engineer's panel and some equipment, and the outer right of the fuselage outside had a compression mark. The captain survived and was dug out of the cockpit. Wow. No one else After survived in the cockpit, though? Yeah, they had to pull the cockpit to shore. Sorry, what was your question? There was no other person in the cockpit that survived? No, only 22 people survived total. So. Yeah, but I, th I feel like it's kind of weird that he survived then. The captain and the flight engineer survived. Okay. Oh, so two people survived. Yeah, the captain and the flight engineer survived. The co-pilot did not survive. Yeah. Okay. Well, and there were two people in the jump seat, too. Yep. And that so. was where the wall ripped apart. It, you, Ooh. <laughs> we have posted photos on the website and on our Facebook page, and you can see parts of the cockpit, and you can see why. Okay. All you see is spaghetti of wires. Interesting. As Miranda has already skillfully deduced... There were weight and balance problems. Using my brain a noggin of brains. So per the ICAO, which is a international organization, any public transportation flight must create a weight and balance sheet with the loading and weight distribution so the captain knows and knows where the center of gravity of the plane is. One copy is generally kept in the cockpit and the other is left on the ground with the operator. The following is a quote from the report. The weight and balance sheets for both flights on December 25th, so from its origin to a stopover and then this stopover to the next stopover, could not be provided to the investigators by the operator or indeed any of the general documents on the weight of the airplane or any loading plan for the departures from Conakry to Cotonou. And better yet, they didn't even provide them documents on maintenance of the airplane from the time that the airplane was obtained by the owner company in early 2003. In general, the operator was unable to supply any documents relating to the airplane's previous flights. Supposedly, they had the documentation, but they just wouldn't provide it. That's because it didn't exist. <clears throat> All that was provided was the manifest of passengers and the baggage hold, which, as we said, I say manifests because there were multiple and none of them matched. Man of, I can understand multiple manifests if you're picking up passengers at a stopover. No, it's like multiple manifests for this flight. This one particular route. One well, leg. Yes, but you have several stopovers. And yes, that but the no, one I mean, leg. I mean, this one leg of the flight. For one leg of the flight? There were seven manifests of the passengers Why and the cargo were holds. there seven for one leg of the flight? Because they kept pencil whipping manifests until they were happy with one of them. Which they weren't. <laughs> pencil whipping is a term for uh making up well obviously because clearly this didn't work and pencil whipping is highly illegal in aviation as we mentioned in one of our previous episodes i'm pretty sure it's the last episode no two no, episodes ago two episodes ago they did find part of one of the one that was kept in the cockpit and they found that it was actually a weight and balance sheet for another version 
of the 727. What? So they didn't even use the right one. Yeah. There were a lot of problems, okay? How did they not have a problem before to <clears throat> this day? Dude, I want to know how th- how the plane was able to take off before this day. <laughs> I, like, I know. It's like, if you can't figure out how to get a proper manifest done for weight and balance and stuff, and you have the wrong one for the airplane you're flying... I'm not done yet. But but it's already mm-hmm. so bad. Mm-hmm. Upon, I told you to get better. Upon departure, the crew estimated a takeoff weight of 78 metric tons, which corresponded to the runway limitation with flaps 25. They found, though, that the operations manual by the airline did not have a method for filling out the weight and balance sheet, including a weight to use per passenger. When interviewed, the airline verbally said that they used 75 kilograms per adult, which is about 170 pounds. That was not in a manual. That was just a... General, that's what we go with. Shooting from the hip. I think that's what it is. Huh? <laughs> Let me continue. In general, the takeoff weight is calculated from the basic operating weight, which is the plane and equipment with no fuel, persons on board, and the loading of the airplane, including fuel. There is a variation in values found for the basic operating weight. American Airlines in 2001 said 44.8 tons. In July 2003, the financial advisory group, the owners of the plane after American Airlines, said 47.04 tons. But the last sea check in August said 43.5 tons. The airline had also used a ton of values. I'm not sorry for the pun. When creating the weight and balance sheets, records show using 47.04, 47.17, or 46.2 at any given time. The captain of the accident flight said in his interview he used 46.3 tons. And that's what it should be? No one knows what it should be. Well, that value is what, like, the max it can be? Like, No, this is what the plane weighed. Without anything on it. Except the equipment. Like, flat out, no variations. That's what it should be. It should not vary. They had three different variables for that? The empty weight of the airplane is what it's called. Mm -hmm. How do you have three different variables? And they used even more different ones. There's one! I know. It's just the weight of the airplane. I suspect it's probably the one American Airlines said, but... Um, well, I think so, too. (laughs) Since no one really knew how many people were on board, it was hard to calculate that weight. But it doesn't change the end result, which I will get to in a second. Investigators estimated that the total for passengers and their personal items in the cabin came between 10,480 and 11,704 kilograms. Documents and testimony both say there were 23 tons of fuel... So, at least that was one number we could rely on. And 300 kilograms was deducted for calculations for their taxiing time. So, let me ask you this question. Is, for that plane to take off properly, how much did it have to weigh? It depends on the configuration. So, with it completely filled with passengers, and baggage, and on a full tank of fuel... How much could it weigh and still take off properly? With this limited runway space that it had, less. (laughs) Let me continue. Okay. According to the incomplete manifest, there was also 4.675 tons of baggage in the cargo hold. All of this together shows a takeoff weight between 81.355 and 86.249 tons, which is way more than the 78 tons used in the calculation by the flight crew. So... The airplane was configured for 78 tons. Had they... And it had almost... 10 10, tons more. 10 tons more than that. Had they been able to calculate that, they never would have left the ground. Because the plane was too heavy. Right. And they didn't leave the ground, basically. No, not really. (laughs) That's pretty much what happened. But they wouldn't have even tried. Some initial reverse engineering based on the plane's performance shows a more accurate takeoff weight of 85.5 plus or minus 0.5 tons. That's a lot. So why is all of this so important? Well, here I have a free body diagram which is just a fancy way of saying a picture that shows the forces acting on the plane in very general terms and where on the plane they acted. Lift is generated by the wings, so that is where the line of action of the lift is. The weight of the plane acts at the center of gravity, or CG. The crew, using the 78-ton value, 
calculated the CG to be about 19%, or about a fifth of the plane's length back from the nose. To counteract the weight of the plane, the stabilizer on the tail is used during takeoff because the pivot point is the main landing gear under the wings. The more stabilizer force is used, the easier it is to lift the nose for takeoff. And that value is calculated from the takeoff weight and the location of the center of gravity. 19% was consistent with a normally balanced 727. But they had used an erroneous value for takeoff weight, and they didn't have a loading plan at all for the cargo hold. Basically, they had no idea where in the plane the cargo was. They didn't know that it was loaded more forward than not. So because of all this, when the nose was pulled up by the flight crew, the plane responded very, very slowly. So, Miranda, where do you think the center of gravity was? They said it was... 19%. 19%. Which means it was more central? It was more forward. More forward. So it had to be farther back. So they had more stuff forward. So it, the center of gravity was more forward. So it was... <coughs> so, so it was further forward. Oh, yeah, because they couldn't get the nose up. Yep. With even more reverse engineering, they found out that the center of gravity was actually 14%. So it was 5% farther forward than yep. they thought. Yep. But these, real, these calculations still didn't entirely explain the crash. Even with correcting the numbers, the plane still should have taken off, albeit a little bit slower. But a real calculation and simulation proved that there were an additional three tons of undeclared loading that took place in the cargo hold between Conakry and Kotonou. That wasn't declared. Declared. They have no idea what it was or why it was there. They just put it there. It was just Mm -hmm. on board. The only way they could make a simulation fit exactly what happened is if they added three tons of baggage to the cargo hold. Where the hell did they get all this baggage from? In the stopover, which only took on how many people? Uh, 80... Actually, it was 60... Stand by. Which, by the way, they had originally said no additional baggage was taken on during the stopover. Would have been 73 people. 73 people. And no baggage. Supposedly. But they put, that means they put on three tons of baggage from 73 people. Well, they originally declared that they didn't take on any. They still, I think to this day, they they declare that they did not take on any additional baggage. That's BS. Yeah. There's no way that that's true. So. So where did the baggage, how did they put that much baggage on from 73 people? They must have been carrying other stuff. Yeah, I'm sure they were. I'm. My guess is the airline was taking stuff, it you know, it was like trying to be a partial cargo flight, whatever. Like the the only thing I can think of is the airline wanted to make more money, so they put more baggage on to get it to do Dubai. Dubai. Oh my gosh! But that I can't doesn't explain that. not declaring it because you need no. that for a CG. Yes. However, but it, that could have happened. The airline could have done that without telling the pilots, though. The pilots didn't know about the forward CG. Yeah. They didn't know that the baggage was loaded in the forward compartment, so no, they obviously didn't know on it, on it anyways. Yeah, so, I mean, it's highly possible <coughs> that they took on baggage that they didn't tell anybody else about just to make more money. To me, that makes sense, because as we continuously talk about, airplanes in the air make money, yep. and every time an airplane can make more money for a company it tends to be what happens until something like this happens and then it's like you know maybe we shouldn't do that right when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply so in the findings, there were quite a few of them, uh, they found the flight crew had been exceeding their on-duty time on every rotation of the route. So every week when they would fly this route, the crew on duty would very, 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 very far exceed their on-duty time for a a daily period. So... Isn't that illegal? Y- yes, in most countries, including the ones they operated in. And the reason that that was happening was because 
the company that owned the the airplane, the financial advisory group, they had only found one crew willing to operate the airplane when they hired them. So they didn't have multiple crew to operate the airplane on this very long route that it would go on. Still illegal. Yep. They didn't care. They're like, cool, here's a crew, go fly. That's so dangerous. Yep. So this gets really confusing between the owner and the operator. The owner is financial advisory group. The operator is Utah. Next bullet point. The operator, so Utah, had only one flight crew recruited for the 727 as well. So this this was a big problem, obviously, because not enough crew to operate a long flight. So they were going to be tired. Granted, this flight was early in their rotation. So this was only the second leg. This was still pretty early. So they weren't tired yet. Point is, the airline was operating them at way past capacity. Way past limitations. They were lucky they weren't caught. Because if they had found out that they were running this crew ragged like that, they would have, I'm sure, gotten sued out of the butt. Yep. For running the crew ragged like that. You tried so hard not to swear. (laughs) So hard. (laughs) But I'll go with debut. Debut. <laughs> debut. That said, they found that maintenance documents after the aircraft's purchase in January of 2003 could not be provided, including the period that of the operation by UTA. In that time, so the airline, the aircraft belonged to American Airlines in up until January of 2001, and then it went into storage in the desert. Then in January of 2003, it was bought by Financial Advisory Group and moved to Africa where Financial Advisory Group then leased it to three different airlines. They leased it to an airline in Swaziland, an airline in, I don't remember where, um, somewhere else in Africa for a period of time, then to Utaj, and then it went back to the middle airline that had it, and then it went back to Utaj again. So in a period of one, in less than one year, it had been operated by four different airlines all with the same owner leasing it, but four different airlines operating it. And during that whole time with the four different airlines, no maintenance records were not being kept, I should say. They they were not being given over to the authorities. So they probably weren't being kept. Yeah, or they weren't they were doing the thing where they were making it so the plane could fly. But there might have been reasons why it shouldn't have been. Well, it should be noted, too, that in that time, supposedly, the engines were replaced. It's unknown with what engines and how much time were on them. It's just known that the engines were supposedly replaced, as well as some other major maintenance tasks. And the agreement, when the airplane was signed over to Utaj, the agreement was that the owner was supposed to complete the aircraft's major maintenance and then the operator was supposed to maintain the documentation of those maintenance records. Who's to say what's major and what's not? Well, that's major. Minor things are like, oh, it needs a new riveter, a new light bulb. We'll do that. Major's like, the engine's coming out. We're picking a new one in. That's a big overhaul to have to do. Okay, cool. They found that the operator was not equipped to handle a large transport aircraft, whether it be in skill or materials. This airline... They didn't have the personnel that were skilled enough to handle this airplane, to handle operations, to handle manuals, to handle maintenance, to handle anything of that sort, and yet they were operating a big, heavy airplane. They found that a revised operation manual was approved by the Guinean authorities several months after the beginning of its operations, but the manual was not suitable for proper operations of the 727. The manual did not have a section on the loading and balance of the airplane. Crew did not have the documents required to prepare for flight. They found that the documents for from the previous operator showed that the airplane was loaded beyond its capabilities. So the previous operator, the previous airline that was using the airplane, had documents of weight and balance in the manual, and they were well past those margins on this flight. But they didn't have anything in their current manual about weight and balance. To let them know, hey. With the current operator, this correct. This is what we need. This is how 
how much the air the aircraft can take right to be able to take off properly right they found that the manual also did not define the flight time and work period limitations for the flight crew passenger boarding there's a lot of problems with that yeah no kidding they found that passenger boarding was completed without supervision and was chaotic Go figure. Wait, without supervision? Yeah. So there was no gate agent at uh, all? Basically. I mean, they weren't checking tickets. Yeah. They were just letting people on the flight? Yeah, basically. They were like, ah, oh, come on, just like, come this way. We're Take leaving in like five minutes, get on. Get on there. <laughs> uh, so are you telling me that there could have been people who didn't have tickets that got on this flight? That's very there likely. There were people. Yeah. There were people, you have to remember, there were question. people that were buying tickets off of other passengers just to try to get on the flight. Do we have any idea what terminal security was like? No idea. Because this was post 9-11. It was. Yes, but it was in a different country. And it was not operating to one of the major, uh, other than Beirut. When it gets to Beirut, they went through some serious security checks. So for all they know, a terrorist could have been on board. I don't know. I guess. Fantastic. Anyways. They found that the passenger cabin was full and a large amount of large hand baggage was brought on and the forward hold was full. They found that there were seven different manifests given, all badly made. They found that calculation, the calculations showed that an undeclared load of three tons was likely carried from Conakry to Continue. They found that the flight crew knew that the aircraft was heavily loaded, but did not know the distribution of the load to the balance. Which I said earlier, there was no loading sheet that specified location of the load right or distribution or however you want to say that right so if they had known where the center of gravity actually was they would never have gone would it the plane just couldn't have taken off nope it was just too heavy yep it would have been and loaded improperly yeah it would have been too high for their limitations i still want to know where that three tons of baggage came from don't know cargo Baggage, who knows? I also also missed that sentence because it was literally a sentence. Yeah. In oh, the, the three tons of car, the three tons of cargo. Yeah. I I don't know. I just I want to I want to know what was three tons. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know. That's I mean, true. it could have been anything. To finish out the findings, the flight crew calculated seventy-eight tons for takeoff with nineteen percent CG. When actually it was around 85 and a half tons and 14% CG. Much further forward. They found that the airplane struck a small concrete building located several hundred feet from the end of the runway. And they found the number of victims recorded and survivors exceeded the presumed number on board and the number of seats available. So Wait, there, so there were people who didn't have seats yep, who were on this flight? Yep. There was only 140 seats on the airplane and we know that 140 to 148 perished plus 22 survivors. So there was more people on the airplane than there were seats. How I I just don't understand how that happens. You cannot have people on a flight when they don't have a seat. Because there was no oversight. Nobody was nobody was supervising it's this. Just, it's just one of I Dubai. just I don't get it. I don't. How did they think? So the people getting on board, right? Getting into seats. Why didn't the airline just kick some people off? Sorry, you don't have a seat. Get off the flight. (laughs) Sorry. But they didn't know who to kick off because they didn't know who had tickets. Because they didn't check tickets. That's the biggest issue. Why didn't you check tickets? You're just allowing people to walk on a plane. That's not safe. No, of course not. Of course not. But you have to remember the airline had literally only basically been around for like a year. And of that year, they'd really only operated for two months. And of those two months... They only operated once a week. So that means they only had so many employees that were really just probably contract, knew nothing about the airline, knew nothing about what they were doing. But you know, listen, though, if you are a flight attendant and you see people who don't have seats, you know you've got a problem. (laughs) It's the most jankety thing possible. Basically, the operator found some money leased the airplane, and just decided, hey, we're going to operate this airline on this crazy route, taking all these people, because there's no plane that goes from here to there. And so that they wanted to do that. They made it happen without anybody basically saying no. Because the, all of the places along the route all have to approve that airplane's flight. They all have to approve that route before it ever even happens. And they all did. They all said, yep, go ahead, fly the route. That's fine. Knowing that the 
the airline was brand new and had no idea how to operate. Yeah. I it, The airline was basically, I mean... It, it's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, I mean, imagine if your best friends that know absolutely nothing about aviation were like, let's start an airline just because I want to have a flight that goes from here to there. And they do. And they're allowed to all of a sudden because nobody said no. <laughs> they don't yeah. know anything about aviation. They don't know anything about operating a safe airline. They don't know anything about operating a big airplane. But they just do because they're told they aren't told no. Here's here's the deal though, is my friends are well educated and would ask questions and do research. Well, and it's not to say that the people that operated the airline didn't either, but they might not have been asking the right questions. Because they didn't know. They just don't know. I mean, they don't know. They they know that they're allowed to have this airplane and they're allowed to fly it on the route. They think they're doing everything right, but they have no idea what they're doing. I don't know. I just, I feel like... <coughs> I feel like my friends are smarter than that. Yeah. Like, I feel like you they'd be like, what things do I need to consider if I wanted to start an airline right now? And not kill people. And not kill people. Right. What do I need to consider to, ha- to have be included Right. So that I can operate a safe airline. Right. But if it's a businessman, they're going to see it as a business opportunity. I the hate airline it. stuff I doesn't hate it. know. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate the mentality of I can have an airplane. The airplane's in the air. It's making money. I hate it. Everyone knows I hate it. We just edited an episode where I literally <laughs> said I hate it five times. <laughs> like, I hate it so much because that mentality is dangerous. It is, and it still happens. It Yes, it does. It's so dangerous. In the it's U.S., it's so not allowed dangerous. to happen anymore. There's no. a lot of things that prevent that. But in some other parts of the world, i.e. where this happened, it's really just an oversight. They see money, too. They go, okay, let's make this happen. And the crews aren't properly trained. They run crews ragged. The airplanes aren't properly maintenanced. They have issues. And it's just, I hate it so much because you're causing people to lose their life. Right. Because you decided you didn't want to operate an airline that was safe. You wanted to operate at an airline so you could make money. Right. Which is a narcissistic thing to do and putting everyone else underneath you. Right. Which, by the way, you should get sued because... They usually do. Yeah. Because of all the loss of life. Because mm. That's your fault, ultimately. Well, needless to say, when they lost their only airplane, the airline <laughs> ceased to exist. Uh, Yeah. All those employees found out that day they weren't going to be working anymore. Well, okay, so that's the airline, but really it's the owner's fault. Both. This report does not list a single probable cause, as, say, the NTSB normally does. It categorizes the causes differently. So, the accident resulted from a direct cause. The difficulty that the flight crew encountered in performing the rotation with an overloaded plane whose forward center of gravity was unknown to them. Which I feel like isn't complete enough, because it should say the inadequate weight and balance provided by the operator to the flight crew led to Yes. Yes. Agreed. And two structural causes. The operator's serious lack of competence, organization, and regulatory documentation, which made it impossible for it to both organize the operation of the route correctly and to check the loading of the plane as well as the inadequacy of the supervision exercised by the Guinean civil aviation authorities and previously by the authorities of Swaziland in the context of safety oversight. Basically, both of the authorities, the countries, the governing countries for the airlines that operated the airplane, in just letting everything go. Just letting it go. Just letting it fly. No documents. That just wouldn't fly today. Forgive the pun again. I'm sorry. It's true. It wouldn't. If a plane like this, let's say United had a plane like this right now, they would not have been able to leave the ground ever. And they would have been sued so bad. Extensively. So how I am confessing a lack of knowledge of the economy and state of affairs of workers in other countries. But do other countries have unions for... Pilots, flight crew, etc. A lot of countries do. These ones probably don't. Because they're small countries, right? Well, yeah. Unions also play a role in this. That is part of the reason why parts of this would not have happened in this country. It's because they protect the workers from being at fault for anything. Right. 
Well, and if the workers say, no, this can't happen, we can't do anything about this. And that's part of it. And the airline can't just say, oh, well. Do it anyway. You're going to do it anyway because I'm paying you. Well, that can't happen because this flight can't take off because we're in an unsafe situation, which you put us in because you overbooked this flight. So, sorry for getting slightly political, but there are benefits to having unions. Yeah, there are. And in this case, they didn't have one. Liability insurance. I'm sure. (laughs) And and I'm sure they barely had... I mean, what I do know is they didn't have a contract with the cabin crew. The cabin crew were just there. They didn't even know if they were going to get paid or not. They that just is knew not how I would want to live my life. And had they were they had... even trained? They were Supposedly. trained. Yes, they had. They had certs. Not that they probably provided a lot of documentation on that. <laughs> nope. <laughs> anyway, the following factors could have contributed to this accident: <laughs> the need for airlinks with Beirut for the large communities of Lebanese origin in West Africa. Okay. Hmm. So... I don't know about that. Obviously, they had a huge amount of demand. They had demand, but I wouldn't necessarily say that that's. It's not causal. what contributed. No, it is definitely not causal. Although, but it says contributing. So yeah, I know. Well, that's because nobody there was to nobody was there to supervise that huge amount of people that were just there. Yeah, the amount <laughs> getting of people, on the plane. Yeah, because they didn't have tickets, they didn't check tickets for the people who got on the flight. Everyone who wanted to get on got on. Also, the dispersal of effective responsibility between the various actors, in particular the role played by the owner of the airplane, which made supervision complicated. Yep. No. Really. Yeah. (laughs) Who has a hard time not cussing now? (laughs) You. (laughs) The failure by the operator at Conakry and Cotonou to call on service companies to supply information on the airplane's loading. It's called Boeing. The captain's agreement to undertake the takeoff with an airplane for which he had not been able to establish the weight. He should have just said no. He just he should have said, I don't have enough information to make sure I can properly take off. So until I have that information, I cannot have this plane leave the ground. Yep. More factors. The short length of the runway at Cotonou. That doesn't help. What is it? Short. <laughs> Thanks. Hold on. He's doing the boop de boop. I'm going to continue saying things while he does the boop de boop research. He's doing the boop de boop. Okay. We need to have t-shirts with boop de boop research. One day when we have a One day when we have store. a merch store. Uh, 7,874 feet. Is that okay, short? That quick. It's pretty short. Okay. I think the longest runway at DIA is 16,000 feet. It is. We do have the longest runways in the world, though. Um, some of them. So that's a bad comparison. <laughs> the time of day chosen for the departure of the flight, when it was particularly hot. It's harder to fly a plane when it's hot. Yes, as we talked about in the episode that comes out this week. Yep. Well, not even so much that, but it's harder <coughs> to get lift. Yep, they were along yes. one of the, the tropical lines, too. Yeah, close to the equator. Closer to the equator. Yeah, yeah. They're really close it to was, the equator. It was hot at that, as I said in that, also in that episode. The very wide margins, in particular in relation to the airplane's weight, which appeared to exist due to the use of an inappropriate document to establish the airplane's weight and balance sheet, the existence of a non-frangible building 118 meters away from the runway threshold, so a contributing factor, they hit a building. Sorry. Yeah, but that wasn't a factor on why the plane wouldn't take off. No. No, it They just... would have crashed, period. Yeah, it like, even if they the didn't, wall. like we said, uh, the, the report is just written poorly. I mean, I don't just... know if they hadn't hit the building, could they have just like very slowly and gradually gotten a climb slope? Yes, yes, they could have. The reality is, they probably wouldn't have gotten a cruising altitude for a very long time because they would have had to have burned off the fuel that so was causing them fuel. so much weight. Yeah, so it's the building's fault. <laughs> Uh, it probably didn't help, but I don't think it was an actual Being factor. low to the ground is the actual factor. I'm joking. Please, please don't yell at me. Yeah. Okay, that's it. Okay. So the recommendations. The recommendations are ugly. They're, they're written pretty poorly, and I don't agree with some of them. That doesn't mean they don't exist. Also, we don't know how much of that is due to inadequate translation. Right. There's definitely some translation errors. So if anyone wants to find the original report and translate it, 
more accurately from French, please feel free to do so. In any case, so they have it broken down in a few sections. One of them is approval and oversight of operators. So that whole section just talks about the countries that the operators are in, making sure that those countries and their organizations that approve uh, operators to fly, that they do all of their homework on the airline. They make sure that they have all the documents they need to have, that they are keeping the documents they need to keep, that they are doing everything by the ICAO, so that's the international standard for aviation, and make sure that everything is basically the same for every airline across the board. Nobody gets any exceptions. Nobody's just getting to fly for whatever, like these guys did, basically. That's what the whole section talks about in some very broken down and hard to understand points. To include making sure that your tickets have names and seats. <laughs> yes. So even like the airline I can think of in the United States, Southwest, you don't have to, you pick your own seat on Southwest, but you have right. to have a ticket still. Yeah. You still have, they take the average, I don't know what they consider the average American is weight wise. Higher. It depends on uh, the state. True. Yeah, it does actually. Uh, Hawaii. Yeah, Hawaiian Airlines actually operates with a higher per person <laughs> weight and balance per person on their the airplanes rest of the than the rest of the country because Samoans typically have a higher weight. That's just that's, Samoans that's, and Hawaiians and Islanders in general. Right, it's no offense. Of, uh, it is no offense. It's actually true. They actually operate with a higher weight and balance on their airplanes. There was actually wasn't there an accident that happened because they they had a. Their average was not the correct average. There are a few accidents like that. There's one I really want to cover, but it's not Hawaiian. It was just about how Americans have gotten bigger. (laughs) Did Hawaiians just learn in general without an accident? Yeah, they kind of did. I don't know if they did without an without an incident, but yes, they probably. It was eventually taken that. I don't know that it caused a full on. Yeah, I don't know that it caused a full on accident, but I think having pilots have a few times where they came back with a need of change of pants. <laughs> <laughs> then that probably was warning enough, like, hey, we gotta we gotta do something about this. We need to change this. But even like Southwest Airlines, everyone has to have a ticket to get through security in the United States, you have to have a ticket with your name on it. Right. How does Southwest Manifest work? Because normally it's seat by seat. Yeah, so they still have to go through the airplane and check off which, seat, which seats are filled. But how do they know who's sitting in which seat? They don't. So so and, if there's ever an accident with Southwest and they just have a bunch of charred bodies for whatever reason. They won't know. Oh, that sucks. Yep. They just know who was on the plane because they'll have a manifest of the people who got on. That sucks so bad. Yeah, they can roughly figure it out. But in any case... That still sucks so bad. Yes. But point is, I mean, they... they they still, they have to mark which seats are full. And it doesn't yes. matter because they just calculate the same weight for everybody. Like I said, though, it, to get through security at all in the United States now, even post 9-11, like mm-hmm. 2003, you have to have a ticket with your name on it. Yep. You can't go through security without a ticket. Nope. So this wouldn't have happened even in, in in 2003 because you would have to have a ticket. There's no way you could get past security otherwise. Right. That might not have been the case where this... But clearly, this was not the case in the airport that they had departed from. Right. Yeah, some of the other recommendations say that they should be doing... That the, the governing countries of the operators should be doing regular checks as well on the airlines uh, in the documentation and such. So they don't just let them fly after, the, after they say you're approved. They keep checking on them. The second section is international organization. This talks about ICAO a lot. It talks about the ICAO council being a much bigger part in operators like this one, like Utah, and making sure that they are being governed, for one, and that they are following international standards all the way around when writing documents, when operating airplanes, when even trying to organize Every single recommendation in here is just about the ICAO council examining and vigorously pushing their standards onto these airlines without the governing airline, the governing countries even being involved yet. 
just improving oversight. The very last section of the recommendations was autonomous systems for measuring weight and balance. So there was only two bullet points in this one. And one of them talks about the FAA, actually, um, as well as the, the European authorities, the EASA. They want they suggested that they modify regulations on modern airplanes to include automated, basically automated parts of the airplane to find out the weight and balance as close as possible. With today's technology, there is no reason they should have been manually calculating the center of gravity and therefore configuration for the plane to take off. Right. And to this day, I don't know if it's actually mandatory, but most of the airline, most of the manufacturers for airliners and transport aircraft are making automated weight and balance. There's no reason not to. So that was one of them. And then the other one was that operators should uh, and manufacturers should look at upgrading older airplanes, i.e. the 727 that are being operated in other countries. Yeah. Older airplanes make sure that they get similar autonomous weight and balance to assist pilots and crew yeah because 727s if you ask are there any still flying today commercially there are but not very many Probably the jonas brothers any... still use i one thought there was a 707 no there's a 727 oh um <laughs> <laughs> anyway so but they that's not commercially though they own that plane well they lease it but yeah it, it still it's privately operated but but anyways yes there are still companies that operate them they're not very common anymore they're mostly cargo but there are still companies that operate them. I was going to say, I know Delta operates a lot of older planes. Yeah, but they don't have any 727s. There are no... Okay, to clarify, there are no commercially operating 727s left in the United States. Thank you. We don't even have 747s operating in the United yeah, States we do. anymore. I mean, yeah. the, the only one I can think of is Air Force One. Well, we have... we have There's cargo ones. UPS well, operates them. commercial, right? So That's still commercial. Is the Luf- ones that have Lufthansa and... We still have Those, them coming from out of, yeah, out of the country. If they yes. come from out of the country, that's different. Foreign but operators. domestic flights. But there are no domestic air carriers in the United States that currently operate 727s or 747s. Right. Unless well they are cargo or privately owned. Yeah, and, and I, I don't like the recommendations very much, to be honest. I do think that there's a lot more they should have done. They should have recommended that proper manual, how to... Make sure that proper manuals are being used. Make sure that proper manuals are being created. Included a lot more uh, direct recommendations on crew. (laughs) Basically, crew having the final say. Crew resource management. Those kinds of things. Shocker. Saying, no, we're not going to go. We're too heavy. I don't think this is a good idea. Maybe we shouldn't take off. We don't have any documents on weight and balance for this particular airplane. We're going to fly it anyways. Not a good idea. So, you know, I don't know. There's a lot in the recommendations I feel like was missing. This was a particularly interesting case, though, because we, this was kind of an odd one. It's kind of out there. Most people don't. I literally only picked this flight because it happened on Christmas Day. Yeah, which there's quite a few others that did too, but but this one was interesting because this one really hasn't been covered by Anyone. anyone. And it's, I mean, it's. It's quiet. It's a big issue. It's a yeah. It was kind of. It is a big issue, and it. I mean, it points to bigger issues in that part of the world and that part of aviation and kind of the, the kind of the black market of aviation almost and commercial aviation. It's amazing how that could exist even in two thousand three. To be honest, but yeah. It, well, it proves how important <clears throat> weight and balance actually is. Oh yeah, it's and super overall, important and overall regulation. And where the center of gravity is compared to how much weight's on board, you know, that stuff's super... Yeah. You wouldn't think, as a passenger getting on a flight, you don't think about that, because the airline does that for you, Oh yeah. and they should do it for you. Yeah. And those but are it's... some of the lowest paid workers, are those cargo people. Yeah. Yep. So shout out to you. Thanks <laughs> yeah. for doing... That's why you have to put how much weight your bag weighs when you check a bag, if... If you pay for a checked bag, they ask that it's under a certain weight, like Frontier's 45 pounds, Spirit's 40 pounds, and then you pay extra for the overweight because they have to calculate that into the overall weight. And it affects how much cargo they can hold. So ultimately, it is a penny on their 
profit margin. And that's why, like, I get that people get so frustrated about their carry-on, but, like, that's why their their size is also regulated, because the size maintains that they're not going to probably be above X amount of weight right. if you bring your carry-on on. And then the the same thing with, like, the luggage, you know, the, the checked luggage. That stuff's going to be a certain amount of weight. Yes, it goes over 50 pounds. You get docked for it. If you fly the Spirit, it's over 40 pounds, <laughs> because they're really strict. And I get that people get really frustrated with that, but it is for a reason. It's for your safety. Yes. In addition it's, to making a penny. but you know. Yes, but it's so that they know how much weight they're holding in luggage so they know if they can take off or not. Well, and you think about it, it's honestly one of the most brilliant things the airlines have ever done. One, it's super <laughs> profitable. By charging for checked bag, it makes them super profitable. All of that is profit margin. All of that is profit margin. They make money off of that, for one. And then two, you're less inclined to bring it. If you're less inclined to bring stuff, that's less stuff they have to carry. That's more likely their airplane's going to be able to take off. And that's, that's also more efficient that's that their plane is. Way more efficient that their they airplane burn is. less fuel. They, they make money. I mean, it's, it's brilliant when you think about it. The airlines are brilliant for doing that. And that's why Southwest actually has one of the lowest profit margins, even though they're one of the biggest airlines in the country. Because you get two free bags. You get two free bags. And that's actually a problem because people bring heavy bags. Yeah. They do have to mark, and that's why they do weigh the bags, is because they have to mark if the bags are overweight. That way, when it goes onto the weight and balance, they know to, what to say was put in the cargo hold. So I've seen memes about people like weighing their luggage at the luggage counter and like having their foot under the luggage so that it doesn't actually read the correct weight. Mm -hmm. If you want to live, don't do that. Please don't. Just make sure you don't overpack your bag or take more than one bag. It happens. Mm -hmm. Children with strollers, children with car seats, you know. And don't get me wrong, like one, two pounds probably isn't what makes the difference. It's three tons of missing luggage. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But if but we, still, if we can stop a culture of it now, yeah, then that prevents problems in the future. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Is so that it? that was GIH one forty one. That's the that's what they go by. Gulf India Hotel one forty one. That's what that was their call sign and everything. Interesting. Thank you for listening to our 10th episode. Here's to many more. And Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to everybody. Hope you have a good week. Keep your airspeed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. And our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.